Before heading into the Noshmarkt itself, I thought I'd point out the stunning white and gold secession building standing near its northeast end, the end closest to the first district. The secession is hard to miss, featuring a large golden ball of intricate foliage, three-dimensional gorgons above the doorway, and decorative topiary reliefs along the facade. This is a landmark left by the artists of Austria's Jugendstil movement. Translating roughly as style of the youth, Jugendstil is Vienna's take on Art Nouveau around the turn of the 20th century and is characterized by a renewed interest in the graceful, sinewy forms of nature, an attempt to harmonize function with form, and an attention to the beautification of everyday utilitarian objects. This building was designed by the barely 30-year-old architect Josef Maria Olbrich in 1898 and was conceived as a direct message to the artistically conservative members of the Vienna Artist Society, whose meeting and exhibition space is located just a few blocks away. In the last few years of the 19th century, the aging imperial capital was undergoing the final stages of a massive urban facelift. The medieval city wall that used to surround the first district had been torn down and replaced with a spacious boulevard, the Ring Street, and the empty area surrounding it was the construction site of a series of expensive new buildings. Among these were the two twin art history and natural history museums, the Parliament, University, Rathaus, or City Hall, Imperial Court Theater, the Votive Church, and the State Opera. But much to the chagrin of the young, eager architects looking to cut their teeth on big, well-funded projects, the state chose designs that referenced much older architectural styles. Frustrated with this sense of historical nostalgia, a group of painters, sculptors, architects, and graphic designers led by artist Gustav Klimt seceded from the Vienna Artist Society to found a new home here. It was meant as an exhibition space dedicated to contemporary art and artists, and adorned with the group's motto, Der Zeit ihre Kunst, der Kunst ihre Freiheit, to the age its own art, to art its freedom. In the spirit of the movement's opposition to historicism and artistic conservatism, this building was originally intended to stand, quote, not longer than 10 years. But in the intervening century or so, it has warmed its way into the hard-won affections of the Viennese. Originally ridiculed as a temple of tree frogs and a golden head of cabbage, the secession is now featured proudly on the obverse of the Austrian-minted 50-cent euro coin. The gold laurel leaf, a symbol of immortality, triumph, and eternity, is a dominant motif on the garlands and pilasters of the building's facade, and the intricate gilt bronze cupola consists of 3,000 individual leaves and 700 berries. Other decorative elements reference the counterforces of rational and irrational, Apollonian and Dionysian, conscious and unconscious. The three gorgons above the door represent architecture, sculpture, and painting, the owls, an attribute of the Greek goddess Athena, symbolize wisdom, victory, and the industrial arts. Inside, the secession's main attraction is undoubtedly Gustav Klimt's Beethoven Fries, completed in 1902 and meant as an allegory of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Today, it's located in what is now the basement, but the Fries formerly greeted visitors as they entered the building's main door. Several renovations of the interior have resulted in a more open and flexible space for the changing contemporary exhibitions. These fulfill the association's dedication to fostering new work and artistic experimentation. In fact, the Vienna Secession is the world's oldest independent gallery devoted entirely to exhibitions of contemporary art. So while it's unlikely that you'll recognize the names of many of the artists featured here, 
a visit will get you a rare glimpse of the next generation of contemporary artists. By the way, you'll also find a couple of excellent examples of Jugendstil architecture at the other end of the market, near the U4 station Kettenbrückengasse at Linkeveen Seile numbers 38 and 40. These are two beautifully ornamented facades called the Majolica Houses, completed by Koloman Moser and Otto Wagner, respectively, who were prominent members of the secession movement, as if you needed another good reason to wander through the market to its other end. Speaking of which, the Naschmarkt is the largest open-air market in Austria and a cultural and epicurean melting pot right in the center of Vienna. The market itself has existed in some form in this general area since the 18th century, but its exact location today was only made possible by the deepening and covering of the Vienna River, which now runs beneath the market, following the path of the U4 underground line for about two kilometers between Stadtpark and Kettenbrückengasse, or Chainbridge Street, the name another vestige of the time before the river was regulated and covered. While other smaller markets throughout the city's inner district may have predated this one, the Naschmarkt was perfectly located along a major route into town, just outside the medieval city's defensive wall, and for that reason it received a big boost in business in 1793, when a city ordinance took effect mandating that all produce entering Vienna by cart or wagon had to be offered for sale here. Anything entering Vienna by ship along the Danube and tributary canal would be sold in the Schanzelmarkt, a market previously occupying the Rotenturmstrasse, near what is now Schwedenplatz. Though officially called the Kärtnertormarkt, after the nearby gate that formerly accessed what is now Vienna's first district, the Naschmarkt has long been referred to by locals by its current name, which references the German verb naschen, meaning to nibble or to snack. While the name fits, it actually might have been a slight phonetic mutation of the term Aschenmarkt, which, according to historians, referred to either the ash and solid waste depository that occupied this area before the market, or the ash wood containers used by the dairy merchants who used to sell their milk products here. While vendors at the weekly flea market, or Flohmarkt, on Saturday mornings still operate out of temporary carts and tables set up at the market's southwest end, the majority of the market now consists of three rows of permanent shop buildings, which enable occupants to offer a wider range of specialty products, many of which are unique to this market. Shops are basically arranged along two aisles. If you're approaching from the first district end, the aisle on your right side mostly houses small sit-down restaurants, while the other mostly features open market stands selling takeaway items. You'll be amazed at the assortment of oils, vinegars, olives, spices, exotic fruits, dates, varieties of kraut, unusual meats and fish, and selection of cheeses on offer here, many of which you may be enthusiastically encouraged to sample by vendors. Be careful though, the general expectation among shop owners is that if you take samples, you're at least genuinely interested in purchasing something. The vast variety of cuisines offered in the Naschmarkt attests to the truly broad spectrum of cultural identities within the former Austro-Hungarian Empire and the range of influences on what is now considered Austrian cooking. Along with the huge selection of specialties from Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans, Turkish and Middle Eastern dishes and ingredients testify to the increasingly diverse cultural identity of the capital city. Traditional Viennese cuisine has been described as particularly shaped by Hungarian, Southern Slavic, Polish, Italian, Jewish, Bohemian, and Moravian flavors and techniques. 
which find their expression in dishes like the many local forms of goulash, sausages, dumplings, cheeses, breads, roasts, and stews. If you want to try a Viennese specialty that is a particular favorite among locals, but somewhat of a curiosity among non-Austrians, look for the pale pink meat loaves displayed in glass warming cases throughout the market. This is called Leberkäse, which translates to liver cheese, but is actually neither liver nor cheese. It's similar to bologna, actually, consisting of corned beef, pork, bacon, and onions that have been very finely processed and baked into a loaf pan, and is usually served as a thick slice on a white roll called a semmel. The kind with oozing pockets of cheese is called Käseleberkäse, cheese liver cheese. And the one with chopped bits of pickles and spicy and sweet peppers is Picanta Leberkäse. Of particular local renown, it's notably less common outside of Vienna for some reason, is the Pferdeleberkäse, made from horse meat. For those with more of a sweet tooth, there's one shop located about halfway down the market situated right between the two aisles called Schoko Company. As you can imagine, it specializes in chocolate and has a particularly extensive collection of a brand of Austrian chocolate called Zotta. While they do also offer more normal options and a surprisingly diverse array of drinking chocolate, this company is known for their wacky flavor combinations, which range from pineapple celery to mountain cheese with walnuts and grapes, to tequila with salt and lemon, pork cracklins and nuts, and everything in between. You can find some of their less adventurous varieties in some grocery stores around town, but this Schoko company usually offers free samples of Zotta. If you walk through the Naschmarkt along the Linkevinseile, the same side of the street as the Secession building, after about a block, you'll pass the Theater an der Wien, one of the oldest operating theaters in Vienna, and the city's largest stagione opera house, meaning that it only shows one production at a time. Contrast this with the repertoire model, which switches between shows on a nightly basis, like the state opera. The exterior of the Theater an der Wien has been vastly renovated and expanded since its initial construction in 1801, especially along the market side. But the Papageno door on the Millergasse side of the building is original and belies the identity of the theater's builder. His name was Emanuel Schikaneder, and he was one of Vienna's most successful impresarios and one of Mozart's closest friends. In fact, in his opera Die Zauberflöte, or The Magic Flute, Mozart specifically wrote the baritone role of the birdcatcher Papageno for Schikaneder. The opera proved to be a major cash cow, and spin-offs and sequels were written by a string of other, less noteworthy composers after Mozart's early death in 1791. One of these was Das Labyrinth, in which the Papageno character returns, the role reprised, of course, by Schikaneder, this time joined by a choir of younger siblings. The figures adorning the Papageno door depict these characters. While none of Mozart's works ever premiered here, his death predated the theater's construction by about 10 years, another famous composer has a close connection to this building. While composing his only opera, Fidelio, originally premiered under the title Leonore, or The Triumph of Marital Love, Beethoven actually lived in the back part of this building for about two years in 1803 and 1804. The same impresario who had been friends with Mozart, Emanuel Schikaneder, had engaged Beethoven to compose a stage work for the Theater an der Wien. Despite a rocky start and Schikaneder's firing in 1804, 
The opera premiered here on November 20th, 1805, only six days after the city had been taken by Napoleon's army, with French military officers comprising most of the audience. Their limited enthusiasm for German singspiel format work and Beethoven's own frustrations with the piece's dramatic structure led to the composer putting it aside for nearly a decade. But at the urging of friends and some help from a new librettist, Beethoven relaunched the edited Fidelio in May of 1814. This time, the opera was a resounding success. No doubt in part because the audience saw certain parallels between the plot and their own situation following Napoleon's withdrawal and abdication a month prior. The story revolves around the wrongful imprisonment and subsequent liberation of the protagonist in a prison full of townspeople who are freed from the tyrannical rule of a corrupt despot and reunited with their families in the end. As a work that resonates with liberated people, Fidelio has been used to mark political occasions many times since, most notably in December 1944 as an anti-Hitler and anti-Mussolini radio broadcast by the Metropolitan Opera under the direction of Arturo Toscanini and again as the first production of the newly reopened Vienna State Opera after the end of the Allied occupation in late 1955. Here, surrounded by historic cultural venues and architectural milestones, standing in Vienna's largest culinary melting pot, our tour now comes to an end. Thank you for joining me on this route. If you want to continue exploring the flavors of this city, the stands of the Nashmarkt offer a wonderful variety of specialties to sample. If you're here for a longer period and are looking for additional culinary recommendations, I'm very happy to offer a few now. Before I get to those, I'll just mention that you may be interested in my other themed tours. Check my podcast download page for an up-to-date selection, and follow Gretel Guides on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for information on future releases. If you enjoyed this tour and want to support Gretel Guides Vienna, I'm very grateful for donations in any amount. Contributions from users like you are what keep my content free. So if you want to help me cover the costs of producing, recording, editing, and distributing my podcast, I'm very thankful for your support. So here are a few additional ideas for ways to fit in a few more key culinary experiences while you're here. First, since you're already on the same underground line, it bears mentioning the bakeries at Schönbrunn Palace offer a daily apple strudel show, which includes instruction on how to make apple strudel and a portion to enjoy yourself. More information can be found on the Café Residence website or in person at the Schönbrunn ticket office. If you need help navigating public transit, download the episode Getting Around from my Welcome to Vienna info pack. And you'll find an episode dedicated to the palace itself under the title Schloss Schönbrunn on my Vienna's Massies tour. If you're looking for more great places to hit up while wandering around the downtown area, I have a couple of suggestions. For a light, savory meal or snack, try Trzniewski, spelled T-R-Z-E-S-N-I-E-W-S-K-I. They know it's practically impossible to spell or pronounce correctly, so nearly any combination of those letters into Google will probably get you to the right place. It's a Polish chain started here in 1902, specializing in little breads with spreads. The oldest location is the one just off of the Graben, in Dorotheagasse at number one. The bread they use is a nice, flavorful rye, and in addition to some perennial staples, the spreads they offer change seasonally. Typically, guests will either take boxes to go or eat standing at the counter, sometimes with a tiny beer called a pfiff or a whistle. 
It's an excellent option for something light and affordable while you're wandering around downtown. If you're looking for someplace more geared towards sitting in the center, try a cafe. In addition to the famous ones like the elegant Schwarze Camille or Black Camel, open since 1618, and the dignified Café de Glace, there are also a number of great hidden gems around town like the Café Altwin, the Kleines Café, and the Café Frauenhuber. Or, if you're feeling more festive, you may prefer more fermented options. Just opposite the State Opera on Kärtnerstrasse, for instance, you'll find another former imperial confectioner, Gerstner. In addition to their enticing variety of confections, they offer a beautiful upstairs lounge specializing in Schlumberger sparkling wines. Or, if you want to taste a broader sampling of the local vintages, check out Weinenko, spelled W-E-I-N and Co, near Stephansplatz. They offer a number of free tastings, can easily organize samplings for you, have a large list of open wines for you to peruse yourself, and operate a shop where you can purchase bottles to take home. Finally, a couple more options for places that offer more substantial sit-down meals. I mention a handful of such restaurants, especially places that serve quality Austrian cuisine, in the Lugek episode of this tour. In addition to Plachuta, which I would recommend for schnitzel and Tafelspitz, I'd also suggest a place called the Meierei im Stadtpark, spelled M-E-I-E-R-E-I, in the large city park just east of Vienna's downtown. Aside from being a gorgeous location overlooking the Vienna River, the Meierei shares a kitchen and cheese cellar with the renowned Steirereck, which has two Michelin stars. But the Meierei offers high-quality cuisine in a more casual space. The friendly waitstaff will advise you on their menu and wine pairing options, and I particularly recommend asking about their flights of cheese. With over 140 different cheeses from around the world, they have curated platters highlighting particular types and regions, and the flavors are expertly complemented with various nuts, jellies, honeys, spreads, and breads, mostly made in-house and sourced from their rooftop gardens. I hope that gives you a few enticing options for while you're here. Wherever your taste buds lead you, I wish you a wonderful stay. Thanks again for choosing me as your guide through Vienna and safe travels.